You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in to the Otson Audible's podcast. Matt Prime, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on this Monday edition. That means it's Mailbag Monday uh, we dive into questions that you guys have submitted to us. Uh, you send them to Eric using the hashtag Ots and Audibles, or you could just tag him on Twitter, uh, or go on to, most importantly, the duckterritory.com website and check in on the message board either there or message him uh, for your questions. Got a feeling it's going to be a wide range because we had a good, interesting game, and we've got an interesting matchup uh, this weekend as well. I, I'm going to open up the question submitting as well to YouTube comments because I've been seeing a couple people uh, asking about it and we haven't really used it. I'll try to monitor it, um, especially after, uh, let's say, our, our predictions podcast. You can go back and, and drop it there. That's going to be the most recent one we usually put up each week. If you don't want to, if you don't have Twitter or, or if it's difficult to, to find it there, um, put it on YouTube. Use the hashtag so I can like kind of cycle through and, and find it. Um, but I know there are people who watch the show on YouTube who, who have who've been asking about how to get questions on the show. So there's maybe another alternative uh, route to go. All right. This is going to be a fun one. I think we've got some really cool topics to get into today. We're going to start looking forward and then we're going to kind of go backwards. Um, first question from at TJ Norton 16 hashtag odds and audibles Arizona or Cal. Which game poses the biggest trap game threat? Assuming the Ducks are undefeated in Pac-12 play for Cal as well. Um, the Ducks do play California. The final, I believe it's the no, it's the twenty second of October. Uh, no, it's the 29th of October, isn't it? Yeah, it's the final Halloween week- weekend. It is the final game of October after they play uh, UCLA at home. They will go to Berkeley. Um, so that means to get to undefeated, they would have to beat Arizona. They would have to beat UCLA. Um, I think UCLA is going to be a tough out, obviously, based upon what we saw this last weekend. Um, I think this is an interesting question, and the reason I wanted to include it is because these are two programs that traditionally give Oregon some, some difficulty. You know, uh, the Cal's won a couple games that have been kind of tough. They've also just been really competitive and like kind of weird low-scoring games for the most part of the decade. It seems like the Arizona games go one way or the other. It's like either Oregon wins by like five touchdowns or they lose by five touchdowns historically. They haven't been that many close ones if you go back and look through it. Um, but I, I also think what makes this interesting is stylistically, these teams are really different. Um, and I think Arizona clearly poses a bigger threat when you look at what their strengths are. Um, you know, you look at Arizona offensively, this is a very potent passing offense. In fact, this is basically like, aside from Washington, the most potent. And I think you look at Washington, you kind of wonder. You have some question marks after this last weekend, I think. Um, not that you don't with Arizona as well, but I think Washington kind of got tested and didn't maybe turn up the way you'd like to see from a Husky perspective. But Arizona, Jade Delora had six touchdowns this last weekend. 
against Colorado. I know Colorado's obviously very poor. They fired their they they're, coach. They're bad. They made a coaching change they're directly bad. after the game, which indicates they're not doing great. But, um, you know, Arizona's second in the Pac-12 in pass offense. Where do we think Oregon has issues? It's in pass defense. Mm-hmm. Um, Cal is eighth in pass offense. And I'll be honest, having watched a good amount of the Cal-Washington State game and, and even a little bit of the Cal game the week before, I don't think uh, Plummer's a very – He's, he, I, I, he doesn't scare me. I, mean, I think he can competently run an offense that, you know, if they're able to succeed running the football, maybe they can beat you a little bit over the top with some play action stuff. But I just don't, I'm not, I, he doesn't concern me. Whereas Delora, Oregon's played him a couple times. He's someone that can be kind of scary to go against. Um, and then you just look at what Cal does offensively. They have one of the best rush offenses in the conference behind Jade Knott. Um, and Washington, you know, and Arizona is not a very good running team this year. Uh, so, I think just from a, what defense, what offenses have, have had given Oregon problems, I think Arizona is probably scarier. And then it's interesting because you look at the defensive side of things, Cal, middle of the road rush defense, Arizona, very bad rush defense. So it kind of goes back and forth here a little bit of like, I think Oregon's defense is probably more susceptible to Arizona, but Oregon's offense should be able to move the ball really well against Arizona. Um, and, you know, Arizona has a great pass defense, but that's because no one throws the ball in Arizona because they're busy. Busy running for busy running 225 yards. So, you know, I, I, I kind of go back and forth on this one. And, and an interesting thing is in the head-to-head, obviously, Cal kind of handled Arizona, um, which is notable. Um, but I, I actually think from a stylistic and kind of a matchup perspective, Arizona is probably a little bit scarier than Cal this year for me. This is Arizona easily, like 100%. Like I don't I, – I, this is just for how Oregon runs their defense. Arizona is probably like the last team that they want to see. They're heavy. They're screen heavy. They're quick break heavy. They got Jacob Cowan, who's an excellent receiver. They have a quarterback who's capable of throwing the ball anywhere over the field. And Oregon's one weakness defensively this year so far has clearly been running east to west on on passes. Uh, run defense is really good. I think they're second in the conference in stopping the run, um, but they they can struggle at points. In, in short, quick passes. We saw against Georgia, obviously. We saw that against Washington State just you know two weeks ago, a week ago, really. Um, and that's going to be what Arizona does. That's their bread and butter. That's what they did last year, even though they, they just weren't good. They hit the transfer portal hard. They got some really good offensive players. Um, I, I mean, I think Cal is, a, is a, just a very average Pac-12 team. And nothing about their offense really scares me. Like Eric was saying, I don't think Plummer is – is a quarterback who worries me. Jaden Ott, who's a very talented running back. Um, he was really good against Arizona, but like I said, I think yeah. at, at the football game this weekend, that to, to Jared, Den- Jared, Jared Denny of on three, I felt like he and I could run for 100 yards each against Arizona's rush defense. Like, you know, they're averaging over, or they're allowing over 200 yards a game on the ground, which is second to Colorado. Actually, I just looked this up. Colorado is averaging almost 300 yards on the ground, which is. That's unbelievable. Really, really pitiful. Yeah, that's that really, un- really impressive. Unbelievable to see a defense allow 300 yards on the ground per game over a five-game sample. Sorry, go ahead. I just was looking it's, at that too. It's impressive. But, yeah, I, I just think Arizona is is the bigger trap game. Um, but like Eric said, you look at both of these teams, and they've had their own share of history, just like Washington State and Stanford have against Oregon in these types of scenarios. Um, but, I, I, you know, this – I was talking about this yesterday, but this three this three game stretch between Washington State, Stanford, and Arizona are like all of Oregon's kryptonites, especially traveling to the desert. 
Um, and, and so that kind of goes into why I think Arizona is even bigger of a trap game as well, just because they have to fly to the desert. And for some reason that always kind of messes with Oregon, at least it has in the past. We'll see again this year, but um, just, just overall wise and trap game, just what Arizona runs. It's just not conducive to what Oregon likes to do on defense. Um, Arizona, I guess. I don't think either of them are going to be a trap game, though. I I don't. Jared said Colorado. I'm getting two teams mixed. Call uh, California is an average Pac-12 team. Yeah, I agree with that. North Dakota State's an FCS team. They barely won that game. They were not competitive against Mississippi State. And then San Diego State's a team that traditionally puts up good defensive numbers, but they're not good this year either. And I, I'm i choosing option C. Neither are a trap game. Oregon's going to blow out both teams. Boom. Coming out of the gate. Firing. All right. Let's move on to number two, at Canal Beers, which, by the way, great hash. I like that. I like that Twitter handle. Hashtag odds and audibles. Is it time to make Bucky Irving more of a bell cow back? He ran for over nine yards per carry and seemed a few steps above the other backs. Curious, and he also, I don't even know if you want to get into this part because I feel like we've litigated this as much as we can. Curious about Cardwell's status as well, assuming his injury kept him out. I I, I don't even know if we want to touch on that because it's like it, he, he dresses and goes to practice. He warms up on the side. He does a little bit, but doesn't do very much. You know, Dan, Dan says once he's healthy, he's going to be available to do things. Clearly, he's not healthy. His mom says he's healthy, though, and it's like it's kind of this whole weird deal. So I don't want to open up that can of worms too much. I'm just putting that one off to the side. To the Bucky point, boy, Eric, my per- yeah, Eric, are you sure you want to talk about this? My Bucky thing? Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I want to talk about this because I I want to. If he just would have one more carry, this is like me watching Leonard Fournette last night on the Sunday Night Football game with my fantasy team of just like get get, get him the ball a couple more times and I'm going to be you I'm poor gonna be, guy. I'm going to be golden. Uh, no, it's 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 uh, it's in the past now. Uh, my my Scopeldama's predictions were feelings were a little bit hurt. I went 100 yards and he had 99 at one point, then lost two yards, ended with 97, and he only had 10 touches. Um, I, I you know I, I do feel selfishly, and I say selfishly because I've been predicting he gets 100 yards like every game this season, and mm-hmm. every game he gets like 10 to 14 carries and falls just short. I'd love to see it. I do think he's quite clearly the most talented back, and and I think we can. You know, there was a couple questions asking about kind of how, you know, how impressive he's been and kind of where he stacks up and some people trying to compare it to the CJ Travis com- combo. I think we already did a bit of a breakdown on that after the after the win over the Cougars uh, in, in Pullman. But I, I'm so impressed with him. And you go back and you watch the game highlights each of the last four weeks or so. And I, I can't think of very few runs where he's, doesn't make at least one guy miss. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty impressive. His ability to change direction, um, I think his vision is great. Um, I, I, I think his footwork and his balance is impressive. I, I, I just love the way he runs, and I, I think he's one of the more talented running backs, you know, in the conference. Uh, PFF, I think, has him third nationally in their, in their rushing grades for the whole season in terms of that's just running the football, what they're doing with the ball. Um, his grade was in, I think, the mid-90s for this last week. And again, small sample size. But, I mean, so I guess my answer is it seems like when he has the ball, good things happen. So I'd love to see him get the ball more. I also am not expecting to see 
him carry the ball more than maybe 16, 18 times in a game all season. I think they want to rotate. And I will also say the step back to Noah hasn't been exactly terrible. I think he's run really hard and have been really impressed with him. And they clearly have roles that they want to use for Jordan and for Sean. Do I think Bucky, if he was a full-time, you know, three down back and played 80% of the snaps could be super explosive and put up video game numbers? Sure. But uh, I don't expect that to happen. So I'm not going to sit here and say they need to do that. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, I think we'd all like to see Bucky Irving be a bell cow back just because it's really fun to watch him play. Um, but there's there's no real reason to have him there. Noah Whittington is, is a very solid running back. We saw it yesterday. We've seen it multiple times this season. He's explosive, but he also lowers his shoulder. And the guys, uh, he, he could be a number one running back, too. And, you know, for a little bit at the start of the season, it was kind of a back and forth of who was going to start. Um, you know, clearly Bucky has taken the reins on that, but – and clearly he has showcased, especially the last two weeks, that he is just a dude. Again, if you give him one more carry against Stanford, he probably he gets over 100 yards. If you give him one, maybe two more carries against Washington State, he gets over 100 yards. Um, I, I think in a game like who we were just talking about, Arizona, who's allowing a million yards on the ground, the, you know, the, those types of games could be where Bucky Irving and Noah Whittington eat, and they showcase why they are one and two, not one and then uh, just the other guy. This is very similar to the CJ and Travis deal that Oregon has dealt with the last couple of years, where you have two very talented running backs and it doesn't matter who gets the carries. I think Bucky and Noah are a little more alike than Sa than Travis and CJ. I almost said Savas, a nice combination. Um, I think it's clear that these guys are just too good not to have one guy get like 25 carries and the other guy get like six or seven. Um, and their offense doesn't change. Winnington can do everything that Bucky does. I think he's a better pass blocker, at least um, grading out wise. I think he is, but uh, I think it's, it's fine to have them both have a 50, 50 or 55, 45% split. Um, personally. Yeah. I'd love to see Bucky run more just because man, he's, he's really dang good. And like, like the, like the question says, runs from nine yards of carry, you know, that's really hard to do. That's not happening often. And you know, he's putting a lot of effort into that and he's, just so much more talented than, than a back I think we've seen in the last couple of years here. I think we are seeing the bell cow happen. It's just they're splitting the carries up between two guys. Sure. Um, Bucky and Noah are pretty identical in their attempts. Bucky with 48 through five games, Whittington with 46 through five games. The third leading rusher on the team is Bo Nix. I don't know if that's by design, some of it. I mean, his 80-yard touchdown was him making a read and then choosing to to run the football. It was an option, but it wasn't the exact play call for him to just run the football. Um, Dollars and, and Jordan James are, are tied for fourth with 19 carries. I think Oregon's going with this strategy to preserve health, to make sure by the end of the season they have three or four guys who – are full go and aren't dealing with some kind of, I don't want to say major, but some kind of injury that they're having to play through that kind of limits what they've done. I mean, how many times in the last four years was the concern in November of Verdell? How, how effective is he going to be because he's playing dinged up? I mean, we saw that with Royce Freeman a little bit towards the end of his career as well. Um, tight, uh, Ty Thompson, um, Thomas Tyner, 
was another guy that dealt with a lot of injuries. He took a, you know some carries. It's knock on wood here. It's the fifth week of the season. Through you know, we're we're through five weeks, but I don't feel like Bucky or Noah or Dollars or James are really like flirting with some kind of like limitation injury wise. And if your two top guys are, they're obviously not going to be a hundred percent, but if they're near 90% come November, you're playing with house money there. So I, I like what they're doing. The, the production still happens. You know, Bucky's I think in the top 10 in rushing yards and then Knicks and Winnington are just close. Um, I, I mean, if you're really splitting hairs, really, really splitting hairs. And we know Dan Lanning's not a stat guy, so he could care less, you know, but from a touchdown perspective, Bucky and Noah having a combined two through five games probably isn't the greatest selling point on the recruiting trail or, you know, but, but look at the production that they're doing on, on a per carry basis. And that kind of makes up for it. So I, I'm not worried. I, I like what they're doing. Keep going. I think another thing we have to consider here is a bit of the game script and situational stuff. Um, right. You look at the, I mean, I think you just throw the Georgia thing out. That was the first game. They're still trying to figure out rotations. They played, like, literally played five guys and gave them pretty even snap counts. And even, that was even more even against Eastern. But the last three games against good competition or, or you know, power five competition, the BYU game and the Stanford game, you were in blowouts there. There's no reason to play Bucky in the second half, really. And he didn't play hardly in the second half of this last game either. Um, the Washington State game, you were behind. So you were throwing the football a lot in terms of, I think actually, Bucky, I, I'd like to see, I'd like to go back and look at the snap count. Jared, can you pull that up on PFF? I know we don't trust PFF snap counts. Can you give me a snap count comp, a comp between Bucky and the rest of the backs for the Washington State game? Because yes, I, think, I think that might be kind of telling because that was the one game where it was really competitive in the second half. They had to have offensive efficiency. They couldn't rotate in and kind of start giving some backup guys some more snaps because part of me does go also what happens when they get into a game where it is maybe they're not trailing, but maybe they're only up three points or seven points and it's a really good – like against UCLA probably. Maybe against Arizona. I don't think so. But against UCLA, maybe it's a really close game and they have to kind of play these guys for four full quarters. I, I have a, a kind of – my expectation will be that they'll probably play Bucky a larger snap count than he is right now. Do you have that yet, Jared? Yeah, I do. Bucky Irving, according to PFF, which, you know, we'll, we'll get to maybe one day, has 39 snaps against Washington State. Noah Whittington had 27, Sean Dollars had nine, and Jordan James had four. Okay. So, I mean, you look at that, you're looking at if you're just – But that all but that all makes sense. Like, it, you know, it's the, like the reason why Bucky and Noah only have two combined touchdowns is because Jordan James is getting all the goal line carries or they're just throwing the ball. Like, they're still very situational now. And like you were saying, Eric, the, like with, with against Washington State where it's all just pass protection – and who's the best receiving running back out of the backfield? Like they're gonna go with with one dude more more likely than not. I mean, Noah, Noah got in there in the second half and had an occasional run, but it was all pass heavy. It was all making sure that someone was blocking and someone was getting out into space if they can. The thirty nine twenty seven split though is is closer to a a dominant timeshare than what I feel like it's it's felt like in other games though. And that was kind of the mm -hmm. point I was trying to get to because that's closer to a, you know, a 60, 40, a 65, 35 split as opposed to 
a 50-50 between those two. Because as Matt said, I guess if you want to say it's a bell cow thing, it's a bell cow between two guys. I, I do wonder if once you get into a little more competitive games, if this could tilt towards a 65-35, 60-40 in a second half. But we'll see. They're still rotating clearly, and, and that's kind of belaboring the point. I was just curious on, on that particular game because that was the one down that's been really competitive, and, and they've kind of had to kind of go with their guys for all four quarters. All right. Third one and the last one before we get to the break from at Rhino88. We had a lot of questions on this topic, so I wanted to just address this a little bit here. Can we consider Justin Flo injury prone at this point? And in the second part, and probably won't cut it at Oregon. The first part, I don't know how we handle the concept of injury prone at this point. Um, I always find that to be such a sort of like subjective sort of like a, like an immaterial term. Like, I don't know what that means. I think sometimes there's really bad luck with injuries. I think, I don't know if I believe in the concept of being injury prone. Um, I believe in like, like the, the concept of being prone to do things like makes sense in some instances. Like I think a quarterback might be turnover prone. He might stare down receivers and throw the ball into positions where they get intercepted more frequently or running back might be fumble prone or an offensive, you know, basketball player might be foul prone or an offensive lineman might be penalty prone because of stylistic things. Injury prone, I don't know if that is a thing I really believe in personally. What I will say is he's dealt with a lot of injuries here um, and it's completely derailed his career. And I feel really bad for him um, to the probably won't cut it part. I think it remains to be seen. I, I, I'm choosing not to be too pessimistic. I, I will say it's hard to be real optimistic about how this season has played out for him, though, just because he's missed so much time already. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're five games in here, and he's already missed two games. Um, you know, he barely – he only played, like, a, a, I don't know, 15, 20 snaps against Washington State, something like that. I mean, so he's basically yeah. played in two and a half games through – he's played 50% of the snaps or less, for sure, in, in every game this season. So – it's hard to feel great about it. Um, I, I don't know if I want to go like big picture and make any declarations. I will say it's just a bummer. It's just a bummer not seeing him contribute because I do think there's a lot of talent there. Um, but I, I don't believe in injury. I don't believe people are like injury prone. What I do believe is once somebody's been injured already, um, those particular injuries maybe are, uh, uh, I guess, are more likely to take place again. Like maybe he's re-injured something. We don't know what the injury is, and I think that's the, the hard part here. It didn't look like he was in a, a boot. Like my, my, my working theory on Saturday until someone pointed out that he wasn't in a boot was like maybe he he's kind of re-injured that foot that he broke last year, but he's not in a boot right now. He's not. There was no injury apparatus at all. So no. And he was at practice. Maybe he got concussed. Week. Maybe he got concussed. I don't know. I, I, but I, it's just it's it's hard to put this all together right now for me. I I I just but I I'm not really ready also to say he, he won't cut it at Oregon. I just say his career has been absolutely derailed to this point, which is a real bummer. It is a real bummer. I I'm kind of with you on the injury prone. I think it's an easy kind of like escape into why somebody gets injured. There's a myriad of factors that go into why people get injured, but saying that somebody's injury prone just kind of wipes it all over and just says, ah, you know, they're injury prone. Um, but saying he won't cut it here, I, I don't, I just don't get that. Like we've just seen him in very limited samples and, you know, he, he hasn't played in two years and he plays just three games so far this year and gets very limited snaps against Washington state. There's still the rest of the season left. There's still a chance for him to get hundred percent healthy and come out and make plays onto the field. Um, you know, he was 
tied for first in the team tackles before last night's game or two days ago's game. He's a productive guy when he's on the field. He's not great in pass coverage, but I don't think that there's a linebacker who really is great in pass coverage on this team so far. Um, but defensively, I, it's tough to have even any opinions of him other than the fact that what he was as a high school player, because that's the most amount of time we've seen him play in the last four years. So um, it, th this book is still very much open in my eyes. Um, he just has to get healthy, and that has been the hardest thing since his arrival in the Eugene. I'll address the second part of the question. He's fifth on the team in tackles with only playing two and a half games. And yeah. he averages the most tackles per game at 6.33. There isn't a more there isn't a player with better production on a per snap basis than Justin Flo on Oregon's roster right now, statistically, from looking at tackles. Fact of the matter is he's just not healthy. When he is, he makes plays. Uh so yeah. him not being able to cut it is wrong. Um he's very, very good. It's just he can't be available and i'm gonna butcher whoever said it but the quote is your best your best skill set is your availability and he's just not available and if he can get there he'll be one of oregon's better players your best ability is your availability matt there yes. you go yeah. no i, I, I wasn't screwed up but yeah you were but you yeah every word but one um no i i think uh it, it's it's the, the thing that's a little frustrating it's going to get to the second after the break question because there's two players that right now have basically everybody's pissed off about basically on the message boards and on social. And it's two players that were really highly regarded as prep recruits who haven't quote unquote cut it since they've been here. And Justin's because of injury. And the next guy who we're going to get to after the break is because of, I think very limited snap counts to really make any determinations, but is did not look good in Saturday's game. There's a tease. We don't usually do tease on this podcast, but I just did one. I'm proud of myself. All right, that's going to do it for us for the first half of the show. I got you again, Eric. Okay. Uh, we'll be back after a break real quick. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Uh, three questions in, two more to go. I was teasing it before. Question from at Joey Bond in 33. I love that Ty Thompson is getting experience late in the game, but he has seemed to struggle with those opportunities thus far. I would have liked to see Jay Butterfield get at least one series against Stanford. Do you think Butterfield will get an opportunity soon? Hashtag Odds and Audibles. Um, I was talking about before the break. Flo's getting a lot of flack on social media, on our site, Dr. Territor, on the message board, because he's not healthy and people are writing him off. And I think that stinks. And then Ty is getting 
way more flack because he's playing, but when he does play, it doesn't look great, at least the last two games. He had, a, had some really nice sequences, I think, uh, at times against FCS opponents in his career. Last year against Stony Brook, this year against Eastern. Had some moments where you're like, hey, that looks good. And then when he's played against not even great competition, but a slight uptick against BYU and this week against Stanford, uh, his past stats are, are pretty bad. He's throwing like two interceptions and I think like two completions against those teams. So I get that part. Um, I think it is really important, by the way, that he's getting late game experience because he probably already has more snap counts this year than he did last year. And that was one of the criticisms that we kind of levied against Mario. And it was in part because they didn't put games away. But, hey, can we get the backups out there to develop them and see what you got? And that's what's important about these opportunities. And I also think as I think Jared pushed back a little bit when I was being pretty critical of Ty and, you know, having gone back and watched it, I, I don't feel any better about how Ty performed, but this is such a small sample size to try to make a determination on what Ty Thompson is. And the one conclusion you can draw is they're starting the right guy. There's no debate. Bo mm -hmm. is much better than Ty Thompson. There's no question about it. Anybody that was still in that camp, I don't think there were many because I think Bo, Bo has played so well the last four weeks. I think anybody who was kind of doubting is kind of like, all right, this guy's, this guy's at least giving us an opportunity to score a lot of points. He's playing really well. Let's roll with him. But if there were any holdovers, you see why maybe you shouldn't be. But I also still think he's your second best quarterback. Um, you know, it hasn't looked good. The sample size is not massive. We heard during fall, Jay wasn't better. And Jay was actually maybe, I don't want to say significantly worse, but wasn't exactly turning heads, wasn't exactly blowing people out of the water either. So um, I, I, the reason I kind of bring that up is I, there's, I there, the backup quarterback thing is always so funny because when the starter's struggling, the backup's everybody's favorite player. It, now that the starter is doing well and the backup is struggling, it's the third string guy that everybody's, it's everybody's favorite player. It's it goes just down this, the ladder. It just goes down the ladder. If Joe, Jay was to go out there, would Jake Van Dyne suddenly be the, the next big thing? He's the oh, yeah. fourth string guy. And so I'm kind of poking fun, but I just – and I do want to get to Joey's question in a moment here, but I, I, it just this, this just kind of follows the same logic of like, well, the starter's not doing good. The backup must be better. Well, the backup's not doing well. The third-string guy must be better. I, I – everything – every indication I have is that Jay is not better than Ty right now or hasn't been – at least wasn't in fall camp. Maybe things have changed. Maybe we do see Jay play a little bit. And I guess that gets to the question that – the second part of the question here from from Joey, which is – do you think Butterfield will get an opportunity soon? Um, I'm skeptical of that. There's only so many opportunities in a season to get these guys on the field. And, you know, you, I, I don't think anybody can really draw too many conclusions about Ty other than he's clearly not better than Bo. But I think you want to give him opportunities. You want to see what he can do. And if Oregon gets ahead against Arizona, against Cal, I think they'll certainly be there against Colorado. You look at the next month here, there could be some opportunities to get significant game time for these guys um especially i mean colorado that could be really ugly i think you want to give ty as much opportunity as possible and sure maybe if ty has a couple good series as we saw against eastern you give jay some opportunities but i also think you want to give ty an opportunity to build his confidence up a little bit and, and show what he can do because i i still you go back i know this the stats weren't good and I, i'm not going to try to say ty played well because he didn't you saw some of the physical tools with this arm strength, which are just immense. It's just about can he kind of tie that in with the rest of it, the progression, the, the accuracy, um, the decision-making. 
I just think there's so much more to work with there that you have to get through before you say, hey, Jay's actually now backup guy. And I know I know the competition's ongoing. I just don't think we've gotten to the point of no return where it's Jay over Ty. I just yeah, I just think this is an interesting conversation that we're having you know, after Oregon drubs Stanford at home. I guess there's I guess there's probably just not much else to talk about. Um, this is just such a small, minute thing that happened in the game. I think Ty has been yeah, he has his stats have been bad and he has really hasn't performed well either. I think he's also gotten extremely unlucky in, in some of the games that he's gone in. Just some some very strange plays that have happened to him, both of his interceptions. One goes right through Dante Thornton's hand. The next one, he gets hit while throwing the ball, which you could have, you know, you, you could kind of value that to his inability to have pocket awareness and to step up. But um, and then for for whatever reason, it just seems that every play that he's in, it just does not go positive. Every play is just a negative gain. Which that, and that's he, the concerning part for the fans is that they're only looking at the results and going every right. time he's out here, things go badly, which is true. The last it is true, right? But I just feel like it's un, it's unlucky, and and who is who is going out there and getting these reps? Because I think the first running back that went out there with him was Noah Whittington in that fourth quarter, and his first play was like a minus two yard, minus three yard run, even though he had been averaging seven yards a carry in the game. And Oregon as a team was averaging near ten yards a carry. I'm not trying to make excuses for Ty here. I just it's clear that Bo's the right guy, like like Eric was saying. I just don't think that this should be this big of a deal. I really don't. I don't. Like, the backup quarterback in this in this stage of the of the season is is pretty negligible. Like you'd like to get him into the games. You'd like to see where he's at. But a tie just you know hasn't hasn't done anything to really promote this type of conversation other than be bad. And I guess if we want to talk about him being bad, which we're, which we're doing, we can do that. But and for the Jay Butterfield thing. It's clear he's clearly third on the depth chart. It's been clear for that for a long time now. Jay isn't a mobile quarterback, which is the whole point of this offense. Can will Jay Butterfield be able to run down the field 80 yards for a touchdown? Probably not. Ty Thompson might have a chance, and Ty Thompson can run the RPO and give give the ability that he can actually go run it for eight to nine yards to get a first down. I don't think Jay has that type of athleticism, and that's probably why he's third on the depth chart in this offense. Um, Will he get an opportunity soon? Probably not. I don't think Ty Thompson will be getting an opportunity for a long time either because these games usually in conference don't result in a blowout where your backup backups are in. And they took care of business against BYU and Stanford. So credit to Oregon. Credit to them putting away a game to the point where they can actually go out and put in their backups. But, you know, maybe they do it again against Arizona. But in the future, it doesn't, it doesn't look likely. Uh, it's just not going to be a realistic opportunity. I think you know, if Ty if Ty gets into the game, I mean, something bad has happened. Um, I just don't think that there's going to be a lot more opportunities this season for either one of those guys to get into the game. Um, I disagree. I think there'll be opportunities. I think this weekend could be one. Um, but down the road, if this happens again, I mean, I, I was more upset that they weren't running the normal offense, it felt like, with Ty Thompson in with a majority of the starters than what he was doing. Because it's – look, he's played as many games as he did last season. He's attempted one less pass through five games this year than he did all of last year. 
Um, his yards are 16 fewer than he did last season. Yes, he's down on touchdowns. Technically, he's a better completion percentage because he's at 50%, 7 of 14 opposed to 7 of 15. Who cares? Um, but this is why you play him right now is – the last couple of seasons when it was Herbert, we didn't know what Tyler Shuck had because yeah. Mario Cristobal, Oregon Ducks, couldn't put teams away or he just refused to play backups, in particular at quarterback. Um, and then we didn't really know what Ty Thompson was like because Anthony Brown and the Oregon Duck offense, whether it was play or whether it was because the coaching staff chose not to swap guys in, created this issue and now you know people are kind of upset that what they've been clamoring for for the last four years is happening and they're giving the backup ample time when it's available and it's well maybe we should see this guy you know it it's clear ties the number two and when blowouts arise they're throwing him out there and they're letting him operate it doesn't help either guy i i don't think by playing, you know, one or two snaps and then rotating or one or two drives and then rotating and whatnot for Jay and Ty. I mean, I, I can't, I couldn't believe I was saying it last night or Saturday night. Cause I wanted the game to be over, but throw the ball downfield, you know, run the normal offense with Ty to get more data about what he can or cannot do. And more importantly, help develop him for maybe potentially next year if, if Bo doesn't come back. And I, one last thought, because I don't, I don't want to stick 25 minutes on this, but I also think um, you hear this a lot with when a coaching staff makes a change from a starter to a backup in a game. There's almost a point of no return there from a confidence level. You're communicating a, level, a sense of frustration, a sense of you know uh, lack of confidence is, I think, the big one. And the moment you go, hey, Ty, you're not performing well, we're going to Jay – that might be really good for maybe building Jay's confidence, but that could be pretty brutal for Ty. Um, you know, and I think there are probably fans going, well, Ty's not the answer, so make the move. I, I think that's so premature based upon the amount of time he's played. And as Matt said, this is what these end-of-game opportunities are for, is to get these guys some opportunities to, to prove themselves, but also to improve and to play some football in actual settings because they haven't had many. I mean, Ty's got like 29 – pass attempts in college i think it's a little early to write him off and say his he stinks um which is why i think making a move to jay sends kind of a weird message to ty anyway i know it's the two versus the three thing and not the one versus the two but i do think there's a similar dynamic psychologically to be to be had there which i also think is why i don't know if we'll see jay play very much this year maybe against colorado and it gets really really ugly and they've got a whole half perhaps if they really take care of business but I, you know, who knows? All right. Last one from at spark or two. How do we feel about Dan Lanning placing restrictions on player participation in shout? Does it positively negatively affect the game recruiting, etc.? I miss Troy die. Absolutely getting down. Hashtag got some audibles. All right. I have, and I, 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 okay, so I wanted to lay out the entire history of this thing, and and, and actually Matt brought up a, a valid point before I even jump into this that kind of is just worth noting. Bennett Williams says that there's no actual restriction in place, but the players, based upon the way the game is going, 
basically were like, we haven't earned the right to take part in show. Is that is that kind of a summation that's accurate? Yeah, I mean, he he said that Dan flat out didn't tell them they couldn't do it, but that the players felt like it wasn't up to the standard for them to be dancing on the sideline during the game. Okay. Which and- is code for, hey, if we're not here, you can't do this. And they weren't at that level. So let me read a bunch of quotes. And I told, I told Jared I was doing this, and Jared was like, really? And I was like, the only reason is because I know most fans don't listen to all the press conferences. They don't read all the transcripts. Those are always available at DuckTerritory.com or on Matt's YouTube page for the videos. But here's just a rundown of every time he talked about shout. Okay. After the Eastern Washington win in his opening statement, he said, what an awesome atmosphere. Our fans make this place so special. You get experience shout in the third quarter. I think it was a lot of juice surrounding our team and the way we executed tonight. Okay, so there's a positive shout reference, okay? After BYU, opening statement. Again, opening statement. He's talking about these things right away, which I think kind of interesting. It's hard to coach at the end of the third quarter during shout, so I've got to figure that out. I thought we stumbled a bit there in the fourth, okay? He was asked later in that press conference kind of a follow-up, and he says, well, does anybody remember the next play after shout? Because remember, in this game, the players had a full-on dance party, and mm-hmm. it was and it was it was a great atmosphere. It was featured on like it was posted throughout social media of like how, how fun Oregon is with the shout thing. But Dan goes, "Well, doesn't anybody remember the next play after shout? We gave up a third down for a first down, so I don't know. I've got to figure that out. We talked through what we we're going to see, what we we're going to play. We didn't finish on the sack, lost contain of the quarterback, so I've got to do a better job of coaching in that situation." Um. That's apparent, but I hope we can figure out a score margin or a rule that can give you an ability to dance on shout based on what the score is. I love that our players have energy and passion for this game. This game is meant to be fun, and our guys are meant to have fun out there. We have to be detailed, and we have to finish the next play after shout. Okay, so there's that. So there's that kind of progression of it and then on september 26th the presser before stanford dan was asked hey have you talked to your players about shout is give a very simple answer we talked to our team about it i think they have an understanding of our expectations so there's the entire thing i don't think and as as matt says bennett said i don't think there is a you can never dance during shout like referendum in place i don't think there's like a i don't think there's like a rule written down in the school, you know, in the players, like, you know, hand handbook of like, if they even have a handbook, but you know, I, mean? I don't think there's like a, I don't think there's like some agreement in place here. I think it's, it's like an unspoken, like, Hey guys, if we're not taking care of business, don't be dancing. You know what I mean? Like if, if, if we're making mistakes and we're not playing up to our standard, which is what this game was, even though the score margin, which, you know, it's interesting. Dan said, maybe we need to find a score. I would imagine four scores is probably enough pretty close to at least to dance. But I think this was more about just the totality of the performance. I, yeah, I just, I know you don't care, a, Jared. Do we, do you, Jared, do you even want to talk about this? Yeah. I know yeah I'll give, about. I'll give my two cents. It'll be really short. Just like the Justin flow thing. I, I just think this is silly that we're talking about it all together. This is like shout is obviously an Oregon tradition and it's very important during the games, but you know, it, it doesn't make a difference to me, to, to anybody who's listening, to you guys, whether or not the, the, the players are dancing on the sideline. It probably takes down a few content pieces for some digital creators on Twitter or Instagram or something like that. 
But uh, call me an old man. I think that this is completely overblown. Uh, we can let Dan run his program the way he would like to run it uh, because it seems to be working. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it. that's all I got. I, I think this is very silly. Eric, I'm sorry that you, you read like three or four quotes and, and had, had well, very into it. But <laughs> I know it wasn't that I was really into it. I wanted to communicate the entire history of it. So those listening who are, I think, coming at this with a kind of a, I don't want to say, just with a lack of facts, have an understanding of what's taken place. It's not, it's not that I'm super into it. It's just that I, I, I'm in total agreement with you guys. I think this is like a complete non-story, but I think when you lay out what the actual story is and like kind of what's happened, you get a better feel for like, because people these days have this this habit of, they get just get mad at things because they think they know what the story is and they don't know what the story is. I think this is one sure. of those things where people are like, the players should be dancing. The players aren't allowed to dance. Dan is no is an anti fun coach. Good. I just don't. I don't Good. think. But I, I don't even think that's true. I just don't. I don't even think that's the case. It's not like Danny's even said. I want the players to have fun. This is a. This is about the game. This is a. It's not about having a dance party between the third and the fourth quarter. And if the players are gonna like, if they go out when they host. I guess the rest of the season they might not have one because they play really good teams at home. You think about it, they play UCLA, they play Stanford, or they play Washington, they play Utah. Hypothetically, they get ahead against – I don't think this will happen – against one of those three teams, and they play an awesome game, and they're up you know, 55-7. to seven. I bet you the players are going to get an opportunity to dance. I bet you they will, okay? But if, if these games are super competitive and they're not playing well and they're, and, and they're not having the focus they need to to go into the fourth, they're not going to be dancing. So – that's that. That's that. To me, is where things are at. I just wanted to lay out the whole entire thing of like this is what's happened. This is this is the this is the origination of it. So that fans that are frustrated about it, that that want to see Troy Die getting down or whoever the current Troy Die person is, aren't going like they're stealing and they're ruining our traditions. It's it's not really about that. I don't think think there's like a, a rule in place that forbids it. It's just. Guys, we got to play up to a standard, and if we aren't, don't dance. Don't I mean, dance. All, all I'll say is, is when 2015 Oregon-Utah matchup happens and Oregon's losing big in the third quarter and it flips to the fourth and players are dancing, there's going to be fans that are going to be complaining. Why are they dancing on the sideline? They shouldn't be doing that. They should be listening to their coaches because they're getting their butts kicked. They're not right. – they, they can't be doing this. Right. Like, it's just it's been a while since Oregon has lost at home, so people forget that. There's not a lot of moments where they're down and shout. But you're 100 percent right, Matt. As soon as that situation arises and there's a couple of dudes dancing, people, some old fans in the crowd are going to get real mad that they're dancing while down seven points. Yep, that's. I mean, it's a non-story in my eyes. I think Jared said it too. Um, Eric is. He is, he is being the journalist of the three, trying to present all the facts so that people are understanding of what's happening. So kudos to you, sir, of bringing forth the information. Well, a lot of people, it, it's mostly because I just see so much unnecessary outrage and it just bothers me. I just want to like. Oh, I get it. I know we have a I decent audience here, and I hope some fans so like that maybe are like, oh, can come away being like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's not that big of a deal. And look, we're going to look, it, it's Monday morning. Um, Dan will speak Monday night. I guarantee you someone it's probably not going to be from the three of us, but no, I haven't asked a question about no. it, but someone will PFF ask question. Yeah. Someone, someone will ask about it. Uh, and it will get 
brought up again, and we will relay that information. I guarantee you it will get brought up. Um, but we'll have to save that answer for a future podcast. Uh, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow breaking down what we learned from Dan's press conference late Monday night. But until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement for his man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen.